What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today, it's the Sunday debate, and we're investigating a topic that certainly divides opinion, assisted dying. Here's the host, Dr. Goody Singh, herself a paediatric doctor, with more. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus online debate. Assisted dying should be legalized. As you can imagine, there is a lot of disagreement on this issue, which is why tonight, Intelligence Squared has brought together four leading thinkers to debate the emotion assisted dying should be legalized. So this is the moment when I'm gonna ask you to make your first vote. Please vote now for or against the motion, assisted dying should be legalized. And if you are unsure, vote undecided. Now, while we wait for those votes to come through, if you've been following the news at all, then you will know that there has been much debate in the UK in recent years over issues concerning the end of life. And there are many strongly held views on both sides of the debate on physician-assisted dying. Now, some helpful de uh, definitions are that assisted dying or assisted suicide, as it's also referred to, is where a doctor helps a patient to kill themselves by prescribing a lethal drug for the patient to take. Of course, assisted dying by definition is not a private act and involves another person facilitating the death of another. So friends, relatives, healthcare staff and society are obviously affected by the wider ramifications of this process. Hence tonight's debate. Now, as we're still waiting for those results of that vote to come through. Yes, here we are. Your first vote has said in favor of the motion, 80%. Against the motion, 5%. And those undecided, 15%. Now we're gonna hear from our speakers and their opening speeches. Our first speaker for the motion is Anthony Grayling, one of the UK's best known philosophers and founder and principal of New College of the Humanities at Northeastern University. He is the author of over 30 books of philosophy, biography, history of ideas, and essays. He's an honorary associate of the Secular Society and a patron of dignity in dying. His latest book is The Frontiers of Knowledge, What We Know About Science, History and the Mind. Anthony. Thank you very much indeed, Goody. Uh, thank you. So we are debating the proposition about assisted dying. And that phrase is important here. So a little bit of background is very interesting on this topic. And that is that back in 1962, suicide was decriminalized. I mean, it seems rather odd that prior to that time, um, suicide was a criminal act. But of course, only those people who failed uh, in their attempt to commit suicide could get into trouble. 
But the decriminalization of suicide implicitly, perhaps even indeed inarticulately, recognized three important principles. One of them is autonomy, the fact that we own ourselves, we own our own lives. They don't belong uh, to the public or, or the deity or something else. They are our own. The second principle is the principle of privacy, the fact that there are some decisions, some very, very important moments in life that are absolutely our own. And dying uh, is one of those tremendously important and very central facts of life uh, that belong to us and are our own to decide about. And the final thing is, it may seem paradoxical this, because you will recognize that both autonomy and privacy are enshrined in human rights instruments of all kinds. And a very, very important human right, of course, is the right to life. It may seem a very odd one to invoke in this connection. But in fact, a right to life implicitly means a right to a minimum quality of life. It doesn't mean bare existence. It doesn't mean existing even in great pain or indignity or, or suffering. It means a minimum quality of life. And so the decriminalization of suicide implied that autonomy, privacy, and a right to a minimum quality of life are principles which are very important for a human being and human flourishing, even at the very end of life. What that, that act in 1962 didn't do, however, was it didn't decriminalize anybody helping somebody to die. And there are two important um, considerations here uh, as to why there should be a possibility of assistance to somebody who wishes to end his or her life. The first is that uh, a suicide attempt might be botched and might leave a person in a much worse off condition than they were before. The second is there are people who cannot commit suicide because perhaps they are paralyzed, they are suffering some condition which makes it uh, impossible for them to get access to means to end their life or, or to just be physically unable to do it and they therefore need help. Now medical science will make dying easy and peaceful and tranquil. And somebody who has a settled, clear-minded, rational desire to end life, perhaps because their physical or psychological suffering is intolerable to them, and their decision is a rational, clear-minded one and a settled one, it seems to be quite literally cruel to deny help to somebody who needs help in that situation, to force somebody to continue and prolong their suffering, their agony, their indignity, uh, because we are um, not allowing people to help who have the power to help. Now, I've noticed that, that um, most of the opposition to assisted dying comes down fundamentally to two things. One is the anxiety about abuse, uh, about people wanting to get rid of their elderly relatives so they can get their hands on the inheritance, or perhaps uh, um, overstressed, uh, pressed medical staff wanting to clear a bed. They know that somebody uh, is um, likely to die in perhaps in a couple of weeks' time, and they want to help them move on. And this anxiety about abuse is a great barrier to allowing people who have chosen to end their lives or to have help get help to have their lives ended uh, is a great barrier to that happening. But if you look at the empirical data uh, in those jurisdictions where assisted dying is legal, you notice that um, scarcely anything in, in the way of uh, uh, discovered abuse occurs. Uh, 
And indeed, it's much more likely that um, families anxious not to lose a loved one, keeping people alive who would very much prefer to go early. The second consideration which arises in this connection uh, is that uh, there is a kind of hidden view, uh, one not very often voiced, but very probably in the near background of those people who are opposed to assisted dying. And that is the idea that we don't have a right to choose um, about the end of our life because our lives belong to something else. And in fact, there is uh, a, a strong uh, religious element to this, the idea that our lives belong to the deity. They're given by God and they're taken away by God and therefore we have no right uh, to use uh, that divine privilege. Um, I noticed that um, many people who uh, take that particular view are also quite happy about capital punishment and uh, war. So it's not a very consistent argument. But at any rate, it's one which in our now secular age perhaps has lost much of its force. Um, that uh, goodie is uh, my opening statement. Thank you so much, Anthony. Our first speaker against the motion is Dr. Catherine Sleeman, Lang Alaska Chair in Palliative Care at King's College London and an honorary consultant in palliative medicine at King's College Hospital NHS Trust. Her research focuses on understanding and improving care for people approaching the end of life, especially older people and those with dementia. She leads several large research programs, including the Marie Curie-funded Better End of Life Project, which produces an annual State of the Nation report on dying, death and bereavement in the UK. Catherine. Thank you. Well, it's a great honor to be here tonight in such distinguished company. I'm very aware that of all the panelists, I'm the one that no one's heard of. So why am I here? Well, I'm here because my career as a clinical academic is focused on improving life for people who are coming to the end of it. And I do that through research, but also through clinical care. So I bring to this debate decades of experience of talking to, sitting with, holding the hands of people during their final illness, exploring their symptoms and concerns, whether those are physical or existential, and then working to improve them. Now, the question we are here to debate isn't whether assisted dying is morally okay, and it's not whether assisted dying is compassionate. The question before us is, should it be licensed by law? Laws exist to make society safer. So to answer the question, we can't just focus on autonomy, privacy, or even quality of life. We have to consider the complex balance of safety. And actually the fact is we just don't have the autonomous right to many things in medicine. I mean, I don't even have the autonomous right to antibiotics when I get a cough. Now that's not because of the potential for harm to me. Actually, they might help me. It's because of the potential for harm to society. And I know from my clinical work that there are people in our society at risk of being harmed by a change in the law. And here's the thing. The people I'm worried about, they're by definition lacking in autonomy. They're without a voice. They can't tell us that they're vulnerable or that they're being coerced. We don't hear from them in this debate. And I can guarantee you that none of them are in the audience. The people I look after, many are old, frail, a bit confused. They struggle to navigate the healthcare system that they find themselves in. They're increasingly reliant on other people for everyday tasks. And they already feel much of the time that they are a burden. 
it's hard to think of a more vulnerable population. Because whatever anyone tells you, this law won't just affect a small number of individuals, people who've thought deeply, weighed up the pros and cons and can articulate their views without external pressure. Legalisation will affect everyone living with a terminal illness who will suddenly be faced with a new option, one that's endorsed by society and within medicine. The Meacher Bill currently going through Parliament has been spun as a modest change. It's not, because it fundamentally changes how we respond when patients tell us that they don't think they can go on living. Now this fundamental change may be something that we, society, decide we want. But to know that, we have to air all of the complexities, not airbrush them. With appropriate safeguards is the reassuringly simple phrase we hear all the time. But which safeguards are appropriate and, well, how safe is safe enough? Because no safeguards will be 100% safe. There will be people who slip through the net. So how safe is safe enough? Let's quantify it. Would we accept the death of one person who didn't want to die in order to allow the death of one who did? Or maybe that ratio is 1 to 10? Or is it 10 to 1? We have barely scratched the surface of understanding the complexity here. We certainly haven't found the answers. Of course we're told, look at Oregon, there's no evidence of abuse or harm. But did you know that all of the information about safety in Oregon comes from a form filled out by the doctor who wrote the lethal prescription. After the person is dead, with no system for independent verification. In 2020, one Oregon doctor wrote 31 lethal prescriptions. And information on complications associated with ingesting lethal drugs was missing in 71% of official cases. Do we really want to base our law on this? Mental capacity, an essential safeguard, can be affected by illness, depression, medication, in ways that we are still learning about. Data from Oregon found that the individual values of the doctors making the capacity assessments determine the outcome of that assessment. Clinical reality doesn't always align with neat boundaries, and it's in the grey areas that harms will exist. One really big grey area is how legalisation impacts on non-assisted suicides. There's some data that in jurisdictions where assisted dying is legal, the rate of non-assisted suicide has gone up, not down. Facts like this need to be scrutinised and understood, not swept under the carpet. So the question we are here to consider is not whether assisted dying is compassionate, whether it's morally okay, or whether we ourselves would want it. The question is should assisted dying be legalised? Laws exist to make society safer. We have to be sure that the risk of harm of changing the law does not outweigh the risk of harm of leaving the law as it is. Now, this condition may be met at some point in the future, but right now, it has not been, and therefore I urge you to oppose the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. 
Our second speaker for the motion is Henry March, CBE. He's a neurosurgeon whose work has been the subject of two major BBC documentaries. His 2014 book, Do No Harm, was an international bestseller and has been translated into 34 languages. Although retired from the NHS, he continued to work in countries including the Ukraine, Nepal, Pakistan and Albania until the start of the pandemic. In 2021, he announced that he has been diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. Henry. Well, surprise, surprise, I'm going to talk <laughs> to second the motion. And I shall talk about this personally, even though Professor Sleeman has said that's irrelevant to the issue, but I'll try to persuade you otherwise to some extent. And I speak to you both as a doctor and, as you know, as a patient who is undergoing treatment for advanced prostate cancer. Now, neurosurgery is not just surgery to the brain, it's also surgery to the spine. And ironically enough, I must have operated upon hundreds of old men like myself with prostate cancer because it typically spreads to the spine and causes paralysis. Surgery delays that, but usually doesn't actually ultimately stop it. So the, the end stage for many patients of prostate cancer, which may well apply to me, is, is paralysis and double incontinence in institutional care. And personally, that is a prospect I view with dread, as I think most people would. Now, the point is that good palliative care does not invariably abolish suffering for people who are dying or suffering intractably from some degenerative disease. Because Dying is, is not just a matter of pain, as many people seem to think it is, but, but even that sometimes is not very effectively dealt with. But of course, palliative care, the hospice movement originated in this country, is something we should all be proud of, and we need more of it, and there should be more funding for it. And the legalization of assisted dying would need not, despite what some people say, um, act against that. But the fact of the matter is dying can often involve great misery and a lot of dignity and autonomy that is not addressed by good palliative care. Uh, in Oregon, in, it's interesting enough, um, a survey of people who opted for assisted dying showed that 94% cited lack of enjoyment of life, 93% loss of autonomy, and 72% loss of dignity. And a survey published in Canada covering last year showed that 82% of people requesting assisted dying had received palliative care. And as far as I know, palliative care in Canada is pretty good. And nevertheless wanted assisted dying. And it was also, it was easily accessible to the remaining 18%. And again, the evidence from all these countries, and there are many of them now, where assisted dying is legalized, is the numbers of patients we're talking about are quite small. One in a thousand deaths in Oregon. Holland is, is a bit of an outlier with five in a hundred deaths. But that's Dutch culture. If you know Holland, as I do, it's, it's rather different from the reticent English. The fact of the matter is I don't want to end my life in a hospital or hospice bed, paralyzed and doubly incontinent. Like most people, I want to die at home, at a time of my own choice, with my family around me, which is what my family will want as well. But the English law requires that I suffer, and many of my poor patients suffer, even though suicide is not against the law. Now, Professor Sleeman, I'll quote, has written in the BMJ, and I quote, none of us has the autonomous right to rob a bank or even to receive antibiotics, as she does said now, when we have a cold. Not because of the potential harm to ourselves, but because of the potential harm to others. 
But where is the evidence, please, that saving people from suffering will harm others? Where is the evidence? Besides, autonomy in the context of assisted dying is not about the right to do anything I want, but about the right not to have to suffer. Anyway, it's illegal to rob a bank, and therefore illegal to help somebody do it. But suicide is not illegal, and antibiotics is simply the wrong treatment for a cold anyway, most of the time. So how can it be that it's against the law to help somebody to do something that is not against the law? Now, the opponents to assisted dying, as we've heard, say that vulnerable people will be coerced into killing themselves and that palliative care will suffer if people are persuaded or coerced by greedy, uncaring relatives or cruel carers and health professionals into dying prematurely. They have a glib soundbite. Right to die will become duty to die, but fail to point out the corollary, which is no right to die means duty to suffer. But if I am to suffer when I am dying, possibly paralysed and doubly incontinent, I want really cast-iron evidence that my suffering and misery is in a good cause and will prevent suffering for other people. So where is this evidence? As the judge Sir Stephen Sedley has recently argued, the current law in England recognises no difference between helping somebody who is suffering greatly and who requests assisted dying and actually encouraging somebody to kill themselves. This is clearly absurd, especially as the law, as the Serious Crime Act of 2015, has no difficulty in recognising coercive behaviour. The whole point about assisted dying, and I can't emphasise this point enough, is that in all jurisdictions it comes with safeguards, essentially that the applicant has mental capacity and is not being coerced as judged by an independent expert or experts. The exact details of safeguards vary from country to country. If you don't like the Oregon safeguards, we could have different safeguards in this country. And as a recent leader in The Economist three weeks ago, and I'll quote, in places of the longest experience of assisted dying, charities that represent the elderly or disabled have not reported any abuse. In America, the Netherlands and Switzerland, the overwhelming majority of those who choose an assisted death are educated and middle class. In short, they're not vulnerable people at the bottom of the social ladder. What is the alternative for people in this country who don't have the minimum £10,000 or physical capacity to go to Switzerland? The answer is unassisted suicide. 300 people a year in the UK with terminal disease kill themselves. Violent and terrible for the family, solitary, in secret, even though perfectly legal, and effectively encouraged by the current law. Thank you. And now our last speaker against the motion, Anne Atkins author and journalist who has written four novels, a play, and several books of non-fiction, as well as contributing chapters and introductions to many more. She has contributed to all the major national newspapers and written regular columns in the Daily Telegraph and Daily Express. She is also working on a first folio edition of A Midsummer Night's Dream for Children. She is a regular contributor to the Today programme Thought for the Day. Anne. Thank you. As a Christian, I have no intrinsic fear of death. It heralds freedom to a far better future for me. So death isn't the problem to me that it is for others. I have sympathy for this motion. My opposition is not philosophical, far less theological, but practical, pragmatic, and above all, personal. My parents came to live with us 12 years ago, and to our great sorrow, my mother died. From which moment, my father ticked all the boxes for assisted death. He longed to be with her. For months, intermittently years, he railed against life. He certainly had full capacity and a horror of being a burden. 
And on the advice of doctors, I had him registered for end-of-life care, specifically for people approaching death. Definition, expected to die within six months, within six months, which therefore he was expected to. A few years later, in 2015, I was with him when his pulse was measured as 17. The first thing he asked the consultant, is there anything you can do for me? The man who wanted to die when my mother did. A few years after that, the GP gave him the option of being admitted to hospital, which he loathed and hated, or staying at home and dying. The person who, in 2009, had raged against life, in 2019, chose life. When he turned 100, 70 former pupils celebrated with him in the school he used to run, and the composer Bob Chilcott wrote a song for him. 43 other pupils put on a lunch for him in the Cambridge College they all followed him to and a different hundred friends came to a party in our garden and we had nearly as big a celebration for his 102nd birthday. On the 12th of March 2020 he had a long interview for a programme now available on Channel 5, The Secrets of World War II and that evening he and I resumed our studies of Aeneid VI, he having enabled my lifelong ambition to study Greek and Latin literature. The next day, Friday, he went to bed early and by Saturday he was complaining that dying was taking a very long time. He was always impatient. On Monday, he joined my mother 12 years after he first said he wanted to. In his last decade of life, he appeared on numerous television programmes, on the Today programme twice, on Radio 2 at Christmas and various local stations, and was interviewed for inclusion in a number of books. Every Remembrance Day, he addressed school children about his experiences as a conscientious objector. He taught almost every day, and he turned around the life of somebody crippled by depression who's now studying in South Korea on placement from SOAS. He gave the reading at our daughter's wedding in Greek, then in English, and sang a solo, and he swam in the North Sea until his pacemaker at the age of 98. The person who never wanted to become a burden. I can't see any protection for my father in this bill in the rawness of his grief. Compass mentis, expressing the will to die and deemed nearly dead anyway. I would have lost my best years with him and our son-in-law and grandson wouldn't know him. Now look, we object to, rightly to capital punishment on the grounds that in case despite years of evidence and trials and judicious processes and appeal, there might be one wrong death. So go figure. Our daughter is in her 30s, one of the most gifted, talented and charismatic people I know. And last year for her birthday, she requested a trip to Dignitas. Her life is one of almost continuous and she would say unbearable agony. Devastated by mental illness, she has expressed the wish to die frequently over the last 20 years. Can you imagine telling her this bill is not for her? That physical anguish qualifies, but not mental torment? That it's available for my father, whose pain would have been over soon anyway, but not for her, who might have 60 more years of it? And thank God, it's not. Yet. Of course, she deserves an end to her pain. She needs mental health care to be researched, funded, understood, and taken seriously. Yes, we could give her a much quicker and easier answer and not bother, which she believes is why mental health care isn't funded, because it's cheaper to let sufferers kill themselves. 
Several people I love very dearly have been distressed enough to die, and endorsing such dreadful despair inevitably blunts the search for the real answer. In my last summer term at Oxford, I saw a tarpaulin heaped at the foot of the university church, police cordons, ambulance flashing. I couldn't understand how exams could be more important than life. Until, age 10, our Aspergic son climbed up on the school roof to do the same. He couldn't do what teachers kept demanding of him. Fortunately, nor could he be sure he'd succeed, and being in a wheelchair would have compounded his pain. The next night, I quoted Lord Jakobowicz. Taking life is wrong. Your own or anyone else's. Years later, he told me that statement changed him forever. Having ruled out that solution, he looked for others. School continued impossible. He failed his exams. He was thrown out of Cambridge. He had to start all over again behind all his peers. But he kept saying, it doesn't matter. I've kept the contract. I'm alive. He's now extremely successful, extremely happy, and still alive. And I want the same for my daughter. So you've heard now from each of our speakers, powerful testimony from each of them. Now, listening to each of our speakers has raised a number of issues for me. And as a clinician who admittedly works in pediatrics and doesn't generally have to deal with questions at the end of life in the same way as those who work with adult medicine do, it still raised a number of questions for me. And as we are waiting for some of these questions to come through, I wondered if I could actually kick things off by asking about some of the philosophical concepts that have come up today. We've heard about autonomy, this idea of justice to those who uh, would like this to be offered to them. But we've, I also wonder whether the call for assisted dying is actually a radical call to increase patient empowerment. The public have been in favor of assisted dying for a number of years now. And if anything, it's the medical profession that's lagging behind. And I guess my question to all speakers here would be, why is this? What is it about the medical profession that makes us hesitant to back such a bill? Is this paternalism in play? And is this a bid to hold on to medical power even at the end of life? I don't know if any of our speakers would like to chip in with an answer there. It's very, very frightening, you might be wrong. I had to make hundreds of life and death decisions about whether to treat people with, with serious brain injuries or not. I was just talking about it this morning when I was teaching my trainees. And I said, if they, if they ring me at night with a, showing a brain scan over the internet of somebody with a, with a potentially fatal hemorrhage, if I say operate, I get back to sleep. If I say no, don't, the chances are the patient will be left dreadfully disabled, as is often the case. I don't get back to sleep um, because I'm worried I might be wrong. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why there's so much over-treatment in, in modern medicine, particularly in neurosurgery, because we're so frightened about, about missing, missing a savable life. But it comes at the cost. You know, we all, I was just saw a case this morning, which was, in my opinion, crazy that my colleague had operated in the middle of the night. And the patient may survive, but there's no possibility at all of any sort of quality of life. So these are incredibly difficult decisions, and most doctors, you know, run for cover. It's always easier to treat than not to treat. 
Catherine, yes, I wondered whether you would want to come in on that question. Thank you. A couple of things. I just want to pick up on public opinion and then I'll talk about um, doctors and, and how they feel. So it's true that in a lot of opinion polls, we hear this statistic, oh, 80% of the public want this. But actually, if you provide the public with more information about what assisted dying actually is, you find that support drops. And there was one poll that found, you know, initially 75% of the public said, yes, I want to leave, we should legalize assisted dying. About 40% of the same people subsequently changed their minds simply when some of the theoretical arguments against were um, presented to them. There was also a public opinion survey this year that asked people whether or not they supported assisted dying and then said, oh, by the way, what do you understand by the term assisted dying? More than half of the people who responded to that survey incorrectly picked the definition of assisted dying out of a list of three things. The other two things were currently um, legal, good practice, end of life care, like having the um, ability, um, the being able to um, say no to treatments that might extend your life. So although we hear a lot, oh, the public want this, actually, if you unpick those statistics, they're not quite as strong as we're led to believe. In terms of doctors, I think um, what I think is very interesting is the difference among doctors within different medical specialties. So the BMA, British Medical Association, did a survey in 2020 that basically said, are you in favour of assisted dying? And I think 37% of doctors across the board said yes. But if you split those doctors into different professional groups, it, there was a huge variation with at one end of the spectrum, ear, nose and throat surgeons who were most strongly in favour. And at the other end of the spectrum, palliative care doctors like me, followed by care of the elderly doctors who were most um, against. I mean, I would suggest that the reason that palliative care doctors and care of the elderly doctors are at that end of the spectrum is because we have first-hand experience every day of caring for people who are old, frail, deteriorating and at an extremely vulnerable time of life. The bread and butter of my job is communication. It's talking to people about their wishes, values, hopes, their fears. And I think many doctors who look after people at this phase of life, which is essentially most doctors, have seen people with what at first glance seemed like insurmountable distress find meaning and comfort and peace through high quality care, whether that's palliative care or something else. But that is, that is an argument. That is an argument for a time delay. That's not an argument against assisted dying per se. In Canada, I think the latest legislation, if you apply, for, if you ask for assisted dying on the grounds of intractable suffering, it's mandated you have palliative care and it's mandated you have a 90 day delay. It's not. Is it it is not. That was it's my understanding. No. no, it's mandated that that is offered to you, quote, if it's available. But so what about the 90 day? What about the 90 day delay? That's in the that's So in there the is a 90 day delay for yes. people who are, whose deaths are not reasonable, re, reasonably foreseeable. Yep. For people whose deaths are reasonably foreseeable, and I would suggest that is an enormous number of people because of the such vague wording, there is, you can have an, um, your lethal medication or your injection on the day that you request well, this it. Is so a, but point. are you saying there are no possible safeguards? I mean, you, you may so criticise safeguards in the various countries, but why not I, then have different safeguards? Thank you. Thank you. Clearly, this is a very heated topic. And clearly, there's also what's what's being illustrated is actually there's a lack of information, isn't there, for the public and even for people, professionals in, in who work in medicine. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv Anthony, I, you've had your hand up. What, would you like to respond to what's just been said? Yes, yeah, yes, indeed. Well, I, I have the very greatest uh, admiration for the kind of work that uh, Professor Sleeman does and the hospice uh, um, uh, service does. It, it's wonderful. But, but I'm afraid, uh, um, with great respect to Professor Sleeman, she really is confusing the issue here tremendously. Yes, indeed, there are many elderly, vulnerable, confused uh, people, and there can be no question whatever that anybody can uh, bring the, the life of such a person to an end because such a person has no clear, rational, uh, settled intention to die. And this, this is uh, uh, about um, people who really understand the issues, uh, who can uh, establish that they are rational and clear-minded about it and that the intention in question is settled because there has to be a de delay of some um, weeks. This is what the current legislation is uh, suggesting. And there have to be more than one doctors involved in saying that they are satisfied that the intention is clear and settled. So we're talking about a very different group of people from the ones that Catherine Sleeman is talking about. And we're, we're talking about people who wish to exercise their autonomy, their right, they own their lives. And they are the ones who are the best judges by far of uh, the, the quality of their life. Catherine, do you, it looks like you want to respond. Thank you. And if I may, um, so I'm not saying that there are not a small group of people exactly as you describe, fully autonomous, have been thinking, you know, weighed up the pros and cons. And for them, I'm actually not going to say that it is not the right thing. It 
I think unless they're my patient or my close family member, who am I to judge that? What I'm saying is that there is a broader question here, and I would love to hear your views on the issue of how safe is safe enough. Do you agree with me that no safeguards will be 100% safe? And if so, please tell me how safe you think is safe enough for this law. Well, look, the parallel here is uh, um, current suggestions about voter ID, because there have been a couple of of, uh, cases of fraud at election time among millions of those carts. And and therefore, uh, everybody has now to come under this proscription that you cannot vote unless you can produce a passport or whatever. In other words, it's you know, it's the reverse of shoot all the dogs because one dog has bitten somebody. And, and, and making public legislation turn on the fact that there is very, very small numbers of people, very, very small possibilities of, of abuse, uh, is quite the wrong way to approach the question. This is really a question about our compassion towards people whose suffering is, from their point of view, intolerable. And and, and as is often said, and it's a a crude way of putting the point, but it's all too true, unfortunately, we're quite frankly kinder to our dogs than we are to our fellow human beings who are suffering. I I think Anne wanted to respond there. So um... I'm a bit kind of flabbergasted, to be honest, that you can compare voter ID, having votes cast erroneously with somebody's life being taken erroneously. I can't quite Oh, I'm not, no, no, please, please, please don't, really don't, no, no, don't, don't jump on that particular kind of bandwagon. It was a parallel of taking a very small number of cases and applying it to millions of cases. Yes, so that, that yes is I, I get that. Here. I totally understood that. But the parallel between having people cast their vote erroneously and having somebody lose a life erroneously, the fact that you can make that a parallel, I find shocking. But anyway, what I was going to go on to say was that within four years of the the law changing in Holland, it was deemed that around three quarters of people who had had assisted dying were not in a position to have been able to choose. How how can you reconcile that with some of the things you're saying? I'm stumped. I, I think just to move the discussion on a bit and actually to, re- to refer to some of the questions that we're getting, there are questions here about the evidence around this. And it sounds like both sides have evidence which falls in their favor. And so I'm really interested in digging down into this. People want to know what evidence is there in terms of where, where, where this has already been legalized in terms of the extra pressure that people will be feeling to, to end their lives. And on the flip side, when, when we hear that actually in places where it has been legalized, there haven't been any abuses of the system, what, ev- what evidence do we have for that? So that there, there, there are two things, and both sides, please feel free to, to respond. Well, I'll just read the rest of the quotation from The Economist, where it says, it is conceivable that some abuse has taken place unobserved, but scrutiny, The Economist says, has been intense. And in most countries, permission to help someone die is revoked if there is a hint of coercion. That is at least what The Economist says. Um, I think Catherine knows more about this than I do, but Catherine, could you tell us who is it who judges that there have been no abuses? Who puts forward the evidence? I think it's different in different jurisdictions. I know, know most about Oregon. We, we all know most about Oregon because they've had their law for longest, almost two decades now. There, information about safety is, as I said um, earlier, collected on a form filled in by the physician who wrote the lethal prescription after the person's dead and with no independent verification. So 
personally, I don't think that's good enough to tell us whether or not there has been, tell us anything. And actually what it did tell us last year is that for 71% of people who had an assisted death, there was no information on the safety, the, the complications associated with ingesting the medication. I think there is a world of difference between stating straightforward conditions that sound very nice on paper and producing safeguards that really do stand up to the pressure of the real world. I mean, to rattle off some of the safeguards that are proposed in the Meacher legislation, first of all, the six-month prognosis rule, which I suspect everyone agrees with me, makes, I mean, it makes legislation more palatable, perhaps, but certainly it is completely flawed as a safeguard. It's arbitrary. There's nothing special about six months. It's impossible, and I know that from a decade of being asked frequently, how long have I got, doctor? And it's actually discriminatory, as Anne was suggesting. Why would we propose a law that discriminates against people with the most slowly progressive conditions? Capacity, as I suggested, comes down to the individual doctor there. And of course, you have to get capacity for two from two doctors. Yes, that sounds very good. But if one of them says, no, I don't think this person has capacity, the person is entirely able to go to the next doctor and the next doctor and the next doctor until one who says they do. And one doctor last year in Oregon wrote 31 prescriptions. It's impossible to mitigate against that. Okay, look, we're, we're, we're having, you know, the... the um, the, the, the argument being put here is that in case there are some abuses, in case there are some abuses, nobody shall be helped if they are suffering intolerably. And I mean, this just, just seems to me to be a, quite literally a cruel argument because it dismisses a whole range of considerations about uh, about people like myself, for example. I'm signed up with uh, Dignitas if I were to be uh, in the, the position uh, of, of uh, somebody who's likely to be paralyzed or, or to suffer or to, to have a, an, an appalling last year of, of life being doubly incontinent and so on. I should very, very much rather have a peaceful and tranquil way of leaving. And I would love to be able to do it in my own home with the people I care about instead of having to travel abroad or uh, attempting to do it m myself without really the proper facilities for it. So the risk, the risk, the tiny risk that there might be abuse, f allowing you to, to say, I am not allowed to have that help, that at, at best I, I can try to do it myself because suicide itself is not illegal, seems to me to be frankly uncompassionate. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need data. We don't have the data. We, d we don't have that quantification. And isn't that essential before putting this law through? Because laws, after all, are there to make society safer. Don't we need to know how safe this law no, is? I'm, but but I'm, I'm afraid the arg that argument cuts both ways because you cannot produce evidence that there is sufficient uh, abuse to, to make it a really serious anxiety that this isn't safe. And actually, and actually thank you, Anthony. I I just want to, to feed in another question from the audience who touch on that point, and it is, it is for you, Catherine, it's how will we know when we have reached the point in the future when there would be no risk of harm by legalizing assisted suicide? I don't think we will ever, um, that's the point we'll reach. There will never be no risk of harm, right? And we accept risks of harm in everyday life all the time. So that's not what, that's not what we're aiming for. What we need to know is how great is the risk of harm and 
what risk of harm does would would society accept here? We put all this emphasis on 80% of the public supports it, but the public supports it assuming there is no harm. So let's have that societal conversation. Let's say really go into the murky area of what the harms might be and for whom and ask the public again, you know, help us legislate in a way that suits you rather than sweeping everything under the carpet in this sterilizer. It's all going to be perfectly safe. But how can we how can we how can we assess the risks without legalizing it, carefully collecting the data, reviewing what happens, and then adjusting the safeguards accordingly? Until then, it's a purely theoretical exercise. And the other point is, every time I operated, almost all the operations I did had a, a significant risk of the patient dying or being left with serious damage. But you justified that risk on the grounds a much greater number of people benefited. And I just don't see why that utilitarian ethic should not apply. And medicine is all about experimentation. We know that. And in effect, your argument, I agree with. We need to experiment with assisted dying. We need to legalize it with strict safeguards and then see how it goes and adjust it as necessary. And that is the only way we can find out for, for certain whether, in fact, large numbers of people are being coerced or not. Anne, I think you had your hand up. Sure. I think we're all being a little bit sort of myopic on this and, and focusing on individual cases. We're focusing on, you know, somebody wants to die and somebody doesn't want to die and the mistakes we make. What we're ignoring is, is the broad brushstroke of what it's going to do to our attitude to society if we endorse it. So at the moment, you know, if a friend of yours is hanging off Clifton Bridge, you run forward and say, don't do it. Don't do it. Let's make your life worth li living. Let me help you. Let me help you to live. Let me help you to solve your problems. This, this is, you know, the instinctive urge of all of us that life is worth living. We must help you make your life worth living. As soon as you, you, you stamp approval on giving up because your life isn't worth living, it changes it changes society's attitude in a way that we're all ignoring. If, if I go back to my daughter, as I say, she, she at the moment is going through unbearable suffering. Now, if society says, instead of fixing your suffering, let's give up, then I, I, I'm terrified for her life because I don't think, you know, I, I'm not at all convinced she would still be alive today. And we're, we're all ignoring that. We're looking at these tiny little cases of everybody, you know, over 75 or with a terminal illness or whatever, whatever. We're ignoring what this says to suicidal teenagers, what this says to our friend who thinks he can't go on. What, you know, th there will be a seismic shift in the way we view suicide if we say we endorse it. So let's let's pick up on that topic about what society thinks and the kind of debate that we might or might not be having at a national level. And I want to pick up on two things, something that Henry just said, which was about the idea that we should experiment with assisted dying as a way of understanding whether this is the right thing for society, which is an interesting proposition. And also, Catherine, what you said, and you've said a number of times now, which is that at a national level, we haven't dealt with death. We don't talk about it, and we certainly are not talking about the complexities of this particular issue in any meaningful way, other than in this debate. So I want to talk about this issue. How do we have a debate that does open this to the public, not, not to the people who are here at the moment, but to the general public? And another thing, that, and one of the questions that has been brought, brought up by somebody, and I hasten to add in the audience, is the demographics here. 
it's a privileged class who are talking about this at the moment. And what, what is it about the way that we're having this discussion, which will actually only further exacerbate inequalities? So there's a, it's, a, it's a big question that I'm asking, but how do we have this conversation in society and how do we make sure that whatever happens as we go forward, it doesn't worsen inequalities that are already in, ex in existence in our health system? I, I think that, that they, they, in, in order to, to be clear and, and focused about what's really at issue here, and thinking about um, the fact that pretty well every exercise of autonomy across the whole range of, of human activity carries its, its risks. We're, we're aware of it, getting into a motor car, getting into an airplane and, and, and so on. The public policy issues have to account for what's in the public interest, uh, what, what, what kind of safeguards are proper to put in place for pretty well anything that people do in society and the impact that it has on, on other people. And at the same time, certain principles have to be honoured. One very, very central principle is this principle of autonomy uh, and of um, privacy. And the fact that life's quality is a much more important consideration than quantity. Now, a lot of what's, what's been said by, by Anne in particular, but, but also Catherine, slippery slope fallacies that uh, if you allow this, then there's going to be, you know, some tremendous cascade of ill effects I, I in society. I don't think I've said that at all. I don't and, think and I've And there certainly doesn't seem to be slippery. any evidence of that in all the other jurisdictions where uh, th this has happened so far. Um, because as Henry says, there has been a great deal of scrutiny about the application of these things. And again, it has to be remembered, we're talking about people who make the decision in a clear-minded and, and rational and settled way. It's not about uh, other people who might be confused or vulnerable. And one final point that has to be remembered is that in just so long as uh, helping someone to die remains illegal, then there'd be plenty of cases, maybe thousands of cases, every year all around our country where compassionate medical professionals do help people to die and but put themselves at risk when that happens. Catherine. Well, I mean, too much to pick up on. I'm going to come back to your questions, Goody. The societal aspect and how we have the conversation, I think, is really important. Our society has become a lot less familiar with death. It's possible to reach well into adulthood without having really experienced deaths. My experience, having cared for hundreds, if not thousands of dying people, is death is usually peaceful. But of course, none of us have gone through it. So who are we to know? And I, I do think a fear of dying drives a lot of this societal conversation. And your point about ethnicity, about inequality, sorry, is absolutely key. Yes, it's true the people who avail themselves of an assisted death are usually quite sort of middle class and socioeconomically not deprived. But actually, we know that there are huge gaps in terms of provision of palliative care. Um, for example, people who are socioeconomically deprived and in ethnic minority communities are less likely to get palliative care. And I think that, and there are 100, about 100,000 people who die every year in this country who need palliative care but don't get it. Legalising assisted dying without ensuring that high quality palliative care is available to everyone sends a really dangerous message, I think, to people who are terminally ill. Well, you can't have palliative care, but here you can have this. I am going to have to draw this conversation to a close. But what I do want is for our speakers now to make up their summing up speeches. They each have a minute in order to 
convince you. And we're going to go in reverse order to the way that we started. So to begin, Anne, could you start with your summing up speech? Sure. As I said at the outset, I have considerable sympathy for those wanting to die. My faith teaches me compassion as well as that death isn't the end. And of course, living is always more painful than dying. Of course it is. But we all know that for those this bill purports to serve, the law is already compassionate. No one is prosecuted for genuine acts of love and mercy. So it's disingenuous at the best to pretend that this bill is for them or that the safeguards are there to stay. Its proponents openly admit they simply see it as a first step to make assisted dying more widely available, as has happened in every country so far that has introduced it. What it will do is approve suicide society's ultimate failure towards the suffering. Our daughters asked several friends to help her die, make despair acceptable, and one of them will. And why should she die? Because we can't be bothered to help her live. Because it's cheaper to enable death than life. Because we'd rather end her life than her suffering. And that's something I will fight for till the end of mine. Thank you. Henry. I think on on the balance of probabilities, the evidence from the many countries where assisted dying is now legal, it seems that abuse is pretty unlikely and unusual. Therefore, I feel very strongly the only way to answer these questions is by legalizing it in this country and then carrying out an experiment. All medical progress is based on experimentation. It may sound rather brutal and callous, but I think it's very unlikely that legalizing assisted dying would lead to a great abuse. Therefore, it should be legalized, very careful with careful safeguards, and write into the legislation that it will be reviewed, and the legislation is not automatically reviewed. I don't really see how that could go very wrong. Thank you. And for your final intervention, Catherine. Please consider that this law won't just affect a small number of individuals. If we legalise assisted dying, then almost everyone in their lifetime would be presented with this new option of whether or not to end their lives. Now, yes, this includes people like us, strong-minded individuals thinking deeply about the issue. But it also includes people who are distraught and confused, people with profound misconceptions about dying, and people with conditions and treatments that affect their mental capacity in subtle ways. A vote against the motion is a vote for more evidence, better scrutiny of unintended harms, and quantification of the risks before any experimentation, without experimentation. So I'm just going to end with a question. What is worse, killing someone who really wants to live or not killing someone who really wants to die? If you think that the former is worse, then I urge you to oppose the motion. Thank you. And finally, Anthony. Well, for me, uh, uh, it comes down to a question really of our respect for others and our compassion for those who 
who, who suffer. I think the vast majority of us want to live and the vast majority of us would continue to want to live even if we were suffering. But for people whose suffering is intolerable, and, and Henry is right, it's not just pain, it's indignity, it's being incontinent and, and very dependent on, on others and hating that dependence. And we're not talking about people here, the kind of people invoked all, all the time by Professor Sleeman, people who are uh, confused and vulnerable. It's not about them. This is something which gives a, uh, a respect for the choice that people make about their own lives, given that they're the ones who are living it and, and suffering it and, and who've made up their minds about what they would like to do about it. In classical antiquity, it was regarded as honourable to um, take your life if you were you know, quite sure that you didn't want to continue living. It was regarded as something that had a rather large degree of, of courage and nobility about it. And when that is the case, for those very, very few individuals, relatively speaking, because we're talking about very small numbers of people here who want that, then it seems to be the grossest form of paternalism to say, no, you're not allowed. We're, we're not going to allow you to do that. There you are, you're suffering, you're, you're uh, in, in this intolerable situation for you, but we're not going to help you. And that ultimately seems to me to be unkind. So fundamentally, the issue here is one of compassion and respect for, for our fellows uh, if they are genuinely in a position to make that choice. So there you are. You've heard from all of our speakers, and it's now time for you to make your final vote on the motion. Assisted dying should be legalized. Please vote for or against the motion, and if you still haven't made up your mind, vote undecided. Now, while all of that is happening and while you are making your final decisions, I'm reflecting on how emotive this topic is, on how exercise each of us became in that debate, how, for me, there are these different poles that we're dealing with here. We've got autonomy on the one side and the autonomy of the patient versus the patient safety question and what this means for us as a population. And it is very much the individual versus the population here. But there's also this idea of quantity of life versus quality of life. And these are questions that I don't think as a society, we have grappled with yet because we haven't had the kinds of debates that are required for this yet at a national level. And so it's really interesting to hear our, our speakers today battle it out in this way. It looks like we've got a result. Ah, so the final vote is in favor of the motion, 75%, no, 15%, and undecided 10%. So there's been a little bit of a shift. It looks like those against the motion were able to persuade a few people onto their side, but we still have an overwhelming majority of people who are backing the motion. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank each of our speakers. All four of them have delivered brilliant speeches tonight, and we're very, very grateful to them for their time. I'd also like to thank the audience and Intelligence Squared for hosting this debate. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.